Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Good evening. So for those of you that haven't been here for the last few weeks, we've been studying the Yoga Sutra, which is a text written about 2,000 years ago by a sage named Patanjali. Um, There are many myths about who Patanjali might have been. Uh, The name Anjali literally means a prayer. Um, If you practice Hatha Yoga, you know that this mudra is Anjali Mudra. And Pat means to fall. And um, so his name literally means a fallen prayer. One of the stories goes that um, Patanjali has uh, many arms and swords, and one day we'll look at the iconography. But apparently he was born like this, and his mother freaked out and (laughs) dropped him into the world. And uh, that's one version. Um, But for those of you who are interested in the scholarly version, um, Patanjali... It used to be thought that he was uh, one of the most well-known grammarians, um, an expert in Sanskrit grammar. Um, If you study in the Iyengar yoga tradition, actually people still chant in that tradition to Patanjali, the grammarian. Um, But actually recent scholarship shows that they lived many centuries apart. So this means we have no idea. And if you're a fundamentalist, this is really disturbing. But it's hard to be a fundamentalist if you look at Indian history because nobody kept track of anything. And we don't even know dates for most important texts or figures. Um, So the sentence we've been looking at uh, in the last week has been um, around practice and non-attachment. And so I came across this uh, quote today... um, uh, by Gary Snyder that I wanted to start off with. As a poet, I hold the most archaic values on earth. The fertility of the soil, the magic of animals, the power vision of solitude, the terrifying invitation of rebirth, the love and ecstasy of dance, and the common work of the tribe. I try to hold both history and the wilderness in mind, that my poems may approach the true measure of things and stand against the unbalance and ignorance of our times. 
The word for ignorance in Sanskrit, as many of you know, is avidya, um, which means not seeing things as they are. Um, vidya is where we get the word uh, video, which means to see. And avidya means not seeing things as they are, not seeing things clearly. And um, I, I read this quote a few times today. I came across it in, in a, a, um, a book of his. And, um, and I found it interesting, this kind of play, where on one side, Gary Snyder is claiming that what his work is standing up to is imbalance and ignorance or not seeing things clearly. And on the other hand, all his work is, is trying to point out what's actually going on. I mean, his claim of his work as a poet is just to um, describe how he thinks things happen. And so in a way, one of the most radical things we can do um, to stand up against imbalance and ignorance and not seeing things clearly is to do the work necessary to actually see things clearly. You know? And Patanjali is saying at this point um, in the text, which is very early on in the first chapter, that the heart of our practice is um, non-attachment or non-clinging, non-grasping, um, And sometimes the translation is dispassion. And I've always loved uh, translations like becoming dispassionate or disillusioned. Because um, at first it sounds so negative, like not having passion um, or not, uh, like disillusionment sounds like turning away. But actually the word disillusionment is interesting because it's actually talking about the end of illusion. You know, not having a kind of um, fantastic view of the world or of ourselves in order to really see things clearly. And it's interesting in meditation practice how humbling this process is because we're watching um, madness or insanity most of the time and noticing how just a subtle shift in the attitude of our or the, the alignment of our attitude can literally transform what it is we're looking at. Did anybody notice this? In the, what kind of things did you notice in the in the, the that little emphasis of technique there today? What did you notice? Sam? It's drifting in and out. This is shift constantly of being really sharply aware of thinking things and just getting caught up in what's going on uh -huh. in my life, back to breath, and it all just dissolving. Yeah. And what about the attitude you bring when you're caught up in something? It's very opinionated. Opinionated about the opinionatedness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that was very clear in that particular sitting, bringing what you said before. So it's not just not clinging to what's showing up. It's not clinging to the view you have about what's showing up. Yeah. Yes. There's an amazing passage in the Pali Canon. The Buddha's giving meditation instruction. And then he says, um, if you understand the teaching of non-clinging, then you understand all of the Dharma. 
And then he says, if you can practice not clinging, then that's the heart of every practice. In other words, in another passage, he also says the same thing, and then he ends it by saying that the essence of the practice is that nothing belongs to me and mine. He's saying if you understand that, you understand the whole Dharma, that nothing belongs to me and mine. And if you can practice that, um, that's the heart of all the practices. And we all know the kind of creativity and love and tenderness that shows up when that kind of craving is absent. Somebody else? What's happened, what's happened for you in your, in your attempt to explore this? It felt like, um, like a shift in attitude would precede a thought. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it, it was like noticing that shifting the attitude before the thought. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, may I share something that happened a few weeks ago? Sure. Pertains to this. I did something called three days on the street. I was living on the street for three days. Uh-huh. Um, and I encountered someone who was living on the street. Well, many actually. But someone who said something that was very, I think, eloquent and really... Uh, that's very well with this. He essentially said that, you know, we come into um, like something like this having our ideas about things. So that a banana that's in the garbage automatically, mm-hmm. because we have food that we can buy at the grocery store, we look at mm-hmm. that and we think it's disgusting. And we mm-hmm. just we pinpoint it as being gross because mm-hmm. that's what we've been taught to think. He says that for him, when he picks that banana out of the garbage, he's let go of everything that he has thought he knew about this. So that that banana just becomes a banana. It's not a disgusting banana. It's just something that he can actually eat. And he lets go of all the notions about what other people think about it. And yeah. it tastes the exact same yeah. as, you know, what a banana in a grocery store would taste like. Yeah. It says if you can let go of your perceived notions about things, uh-huh. you'll realize that this banana is just a banana and not something that's to be feared or mm-hmm. that's disgusting. Yes. And I think it really, it's very apt to think based on what you're saying because it's true. We have these perceived notions about things. Um, you know, what society's taught us to think. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we just let go of those things, we realize that maybe something is just what it is. Yes. And nothing more, nothing less. Yeah. Maybe even more. So much of the other case, more like the man's foster. Maybe. <laughs> That's what they, yeah. <laughs> Anna? Um, I thought I was curious that clinging itself was an attitude. That clinging is an attitude. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, you know, I was, tonight I saw like someone's hair. I was staring at someone's hair, uh, you know, doohickey on the floor, uh-huh. and uh, it became a hole. Okay, whatever. And I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. That's a hole. <laughs> and then I realized that I was, I didn't have, an, and then I thought, okay, well, what's your attitude towards it? And I realized my attitude was that I was sticking. Uh-huh. So it actually felt like a visceral, the, the attitude was visceral, it was yes. plain yeah. thing. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah, there, there's a wonderful um, child psychologist named Donald Winnicott that some of you might know. And um, he had this uh, uh, theory that he called the transitional object, which is um, what a child needs to mediate um, space. So, uh, 
you know, this also could be a, a temporal metaphor too, but that, you know, when the mother doesn't come, when the child is upset or feeling alone, the child needs something. And, you, you know, Winnicott talked about the first transitional object is usually the breast, um, and then eventually it becomes the corner of a blanket. But, you know, something is needed to mediate um, that mood and that space so the child can learn how to metabolize what he or she is feeling um, in that, if you want to call it, a void. Um, and when I studied Winnicott, I always thought that this was the perfect description of what happens in meditation practice. Because for most of us, we have a kind of addiction to having something in the center of our awareness all the time. You know, I forgot who the cultural theorist who says, you know, we're all amusing ourselves to death. You know, and so we're all so entertained all of the time. Um, and it's actually not the big entanglements that cause us most of the trouble. It's just the small blips going on all the time, keeping us the little distractions that are exhausting. And it seems like what happens in meditation when there's a falling away of the clinging to that constant talking to ourselves that we call thinking, um, a space starts to open up. And then at some kind of existential level in mind, there's a bit of a freakout that happens because the storyteller doesn't have anything to do. And so it grabs for a transitional object and it will choose anything. It'll choose a hair band on the ground. You know, in retreats, we have all kinds of jokes about like the meditation lover you know, you go on a 10-day meditation retreat where you can't talk to anyone and you fall in love with the person six rows <laughs> for 10 days, you know? You know? And there's always a story, like, after the 10-day, they actually spoke, and you were like, huh? <laughs> um, and then there's, you know, the Vipassana enemy, which is the same thing. Um, maybe the person can flip back and forth, but... So in a way, just to, to also see um, how the, the, that storytelling aspect of the mind is, is going to grab anything, you know? And just to watch that level of clinging is really fascinating. Now, that's not going to stop. Clinging is part of the function of talking to ourselves or representing ourselves to ourselves. Um, the way to work with it is to stop feeding it. Right? So to give it enough space for it to operate. But if you try and cut it off, it comes back like Hydra's heads, you know? It's like you cut one part of it off and six more show up in a totally different way. Um, Freud has a saying, which is, you know, in the, in the face of analysis, the neuroses retreats. You know, neuroses always retreats in the face of analysis. So when you actually go to look at a neuroses, it's gone. It's, it's, it, and we could say from, from a yoga perspective that the self retreats in the face of awareness. That when awareness shows up, this self-story the self-imagining that we're doing all the time goes and hides. But it doesn't go away. 
And so we have to see the way it's gone into hiding. And sometimes it comes out in the strangest ways, like being entertained by a pattern in the floor. And for a while, you need the pattern in the floor, just like a child needs a corner of a blanket, to tolerate this falling away of what's known. But then to see that, to see that, to see how you're still kind of reframing things. And so that's why Patanjali says here, um, practice and non-reactivity are required to still the patterns of consciousness. Practice is the sustained effort to rest in that stillness of just knowing. Practice becomes firmly rooted when it's cultivated skillfully and continuously for a long time. We all know this, right? Skillfully for a long time. It's a too long of a story to talk about tonight, but I lived for a while in Indianapolis. And one of the things you do in Indianapolis is you get drunk and you watch cars race around in circles. <laughs> and, um, and there are two kinds of car racing there. There's like expensive indie car racing in a big speedway. But then there's what most of the people who live in Indianapolis do, is you go to these like dirt, dirt rings in the middle of nowhere with corn growing everywhere else. And um, these, these homemade cars race around. And the cars have tires that are bigger on one side so they can just hit the gas and go. And it doesn't seem like the drivers actually steer the cars because what happens in the dirt is um, these grooves get set. And the grooves get really, really deep as the evening goes on and the cars drive around. And, it be and as the night goes on, it becomes a very complicated game because once you're in a groove, you can't actually pass another car because your tire can't get out of the groove. And um, it's just human mind, right? And you, it's basically like sitting back and watching addiction, you know? And just how the more you follow one particular pattern, the deeper and deeper and deeper it gets. And we all know how terrifying it is to actually make the move out of another pattern or to let go of the transitional object, whatever that is when you see it. Um, and then you start to see these moods or these lenses through which we're watching experience. And this is what Patanjali is trying to show us here, that you know, the characteristic of all these lenses is clinging, is attachment. Um, when I was contemplating this and thinking about this, another theme that came up for me that I, I could have talked about tonight but I'm not going to is trust and um, what kind of trust is involved in being able to open to um, this kind of falling away Donald Winnicott also has a wonderful term that Mark Epstein stole for the cover of his book which is going to, uh, going to pieces without falling apart going to pieces without falling apart and that's drawn again from Winnicott, who says that there's a difference between disintegration of the personality and unintegration. 
So we don't want disintegration. And most of you here are not disintegrating. Um, but what we do want is a kind of unintegration, a healthy falling apart, but without going to pieces. And what stops that is when we become fixed in how we need to see things. And to my mind, this is actually like the psychology of terrorism, because it's a kind of insoluble relationship where there's, there's no, all the cards are on one side. It's like if I say that I have a point I need to get across and my strategy is suicide, then there's no relationship. There's no possibility of a communication. There's a vision and an end to that vision. And so we could get into a long conversation about the psychology of terrorism, which is beyond the scope of tonight. But in a way, we usually think of terrorism as sort of good versus evil. You know? Or right now, it's America and Islam. But that's so superficial. You know, terrorism is not really America and Islam. It's globalization fighting itself. It's the psychology of a mind that we all have. We all have this. And when good um, sort of is lifted up on a pedestal in a culture and we see evil outside of that ring or outside that hairband, and this hairband is good, everything else is evil, well, as good increases, evil also increases. And the more you raise up the good, the more you have to have the evil. The more you have an inside, the more you have an outside. The more you have nationalism, the more you have enemies. That's why nationalism is so strong at times of war. Because what's better than having a viewpoint and being right? Have you ever tried this before? <laughs> yeah. So when you hold all the cards, there's no relationship happening. So intrapsychic, so we know how this works interpersonally, but intrapsychically, how this works is that when you're holding on to your view, you, can't, you don't actually have an openness to what's showing up in awareness. And this is so key. So in a way, we could call this terrorism mind. And as we all know, I mean, the terrorism that's outside of us is a mirror of our own mind. We all have this capacity. Yes? So what could you um, tell us, or what could you um, touch on that uh, brings us to that place of negotiating with ourselves in the process of letting go of the clicking. Well, I don't want to jump ahead because Patanjali is going to start talking about that. But I will say that, you know, in the absence of negative mind states, um, positive ones show up. And, um, you know, some of you in here have been studying the four foundations with me in a different course in a different place, but we've been studying the four foundations of mindfulness. And in the third foundation, 
the Buddha talks about how um, in the absence of um, greed, so when we really see greed, when we open to greed, and greed has room in our lives, generosity shows up. The full expression of the negative aspect of greed is generosity. Um, when anger shows up and we give it room, the full expression of anger, um, when it's settled, is love. And the other root that he talks about is delusion. And when we give room for us to have delusion and confusion, when it settles, um, its counterpart shows up, which is wisdom and clarity. So, um, and that brings a whole ethical dimension um, to meditation practice. But again, I don't want to get too far down that because Patanjali's not there yet. But let's, let's just go two more sentences and see what he says or she says. Oh. As for non-reaction, one can recognize that it's been fully achieved when no attachment arises in regard to anything at all, whether perceived directly or learned. And again, you can, you can replace the word no attachment to, to non-clinging. I remember when I first started practicing um, um, I really believed when I first started studying and practicing in a certain metaphysical view of reality. I really believed in certain aspects of the teaching, and I won't go into all of them, around you know rebirth and all kinds of things. And then when I started studying in a different school, they had the opposite belief system. And I remember being so frustrated for a couple of years how can there be two teachings of Dharma with two seemingly opposing belief systems? And I remember just how, how much internal conversation and frustration went on until one day I realized that um, I actually didn't know which one was true. And then I realized that I didn't need to know. I didn't need to actually pick one belief system. I remember, and I'm, I know some of you have gone through this many times, but the relief in realizing that you don't actually have to know. You don't have to know. And Patanjali is saying this about something perceived, which is also what Gary Snyder is saying, but also about what's learned. To be able to learn something and still be flexible with our knowledge so that we're not convinced that it's the only way. I'm about to start a really busy few weeks of teaching, so I just went up north to spend a couple of days to relax and look at maple leaves. And I got there, and the well wasn't working properly, and this little solar panel I had fell off the roof, and... What anything that could go wrong, pretty the, the wood pile fell over and was soaked. I couldn't get a good fire going, it rained for a couple days. And so it was so interesting just watching how, you know, I want a vacation. 
you know, I have every right to just sit back and look at maple leaves in the sun. And um, it was just so interesting watching how whenever I got frustrated, what I was frustrated by was a gap. And the gap was between the way I thought it was all supposed to go and actually what was going on. Meanwhile, my son, who's six, like, he's so into being in the rain and piling the wood and, like, getting going up the ladder to fix the solar panel. Because he doesn't have an idea that, like, he needs to go on vacation for a few days. And look, at, he doesn't care, actually. But then Patanjali has one more thing to say. This is line 16. When the ultimate level of non-reactivity has been reached... Pure awareness clearly sees itself as independent from the fundamental qualities of nature. So the fundamental qualities of nature are referring to the three gunas. The word guna literally means a strand. And here Patanjali is taking a form of Indian philosophy called Sankhya Yoga, which predates the Yoga Sutra. Um, Sankhya Sankhya literally means to count. And the the Sankhya Yoga was a system of philosophy that talked about how the natural world is made up of three different elements. There's the element of movement. There's the element of inertia or heaviness. And there's the characteristic of uh, lightness or brightness, or luminosity. And um, it's a little bit like protons, electrons, and neutrons. And it said that if, if you could break every... And this is pretty amazing that these meditators thought this way. But if you could pretty well break everything apart and slow down your concentration, you'd see that every particle in the universe has these three qualities. Sometimes it has, there's a little more inertia, sometimes a little more movement, and sometimes a kind of clarity and lightness. And they're never in balance. It's, it's quite compelling. Um, so Patanjali is saying that everything in the material world is impermanent. It's changing. And yet... In stillness, we notice that awareness, just awareness, so he's not talking about the part of our attention span that's grabbing this and grabbing that, but he's saying when we're quiet, behind the scenes, there is pure awareness, just, or what Tony Packer calls awareing. There is awareing. And it doesn't seem to be fluctuating. All the thoughts, all the talking, all the stories seem to be happening in front of awareness. And when it settles, which it does naturally, what's left is a very clear awareness. And Tony Packer very skillfully calls it awareing, so we don't thingify it. And say, like, because if you reify awareness, then you turn it into a thing, say, oh, then pure awareness, and then you believe that it's a thing that exists separate from you. 
or deep inside you. And it's funny because the first time I ever studied the Yoga Sutra was reading Christopher Isherwood's book, a translation called How to Know God. And, and pure awareness was translated as God. And so you can see how a Judeo-Christian superimposition on this piece here would be, oh, spirit and matter. Right? This is dualistic philosophy. You have matter, which is changing in the body. And then you have the spirit. But that's not what Patanjali is saying here. So, you have the gunas, or this movement in the natural world, and behind it, there's a wearing. Philosophically, that sounds like dualism. Right? But the experience of it, the experience of awareness, is an experience of feeling connected to what's changing, not apart from it. So the academics call Patanjali dualistic. And in a way, who cares? I mean, who cares if it's called dualistic or non-dualistic? The experience of it is of pure awareness, is of non-separateness. And as we all know, the experience of clinging is an experience of separation. It's an experience of anxiety and alienation. And at its furthest point, suffering and loneliness and discontent. Any questions, comments? We just covered a big piece of Indian philosophy. Yeah. Yes. Should you be awaring all the time? Well, you're not awaring. Or, or should awaring show up all the time? I don't even know how to say it. So awaring is not governed by time. Okay. okay. It's unconditioned. But if I talk like this about awareing, yeah. it makes it sound like there is this thing outside of time that must be God. Or, I mean, I don't know. As soon as we start talking about it, we kill it. You see? But yet, we still have to talk about it. But to see that the talking about it is just instrumental so that we can... So this is like a conceptual framework pointing at non-conceptual experience. We have to use words to point it out, but there's no it to be pointed out. So the way I conceive of it, and this might be helpful for you or, or not, is that awareness is like a natural resource, just like water is, just like fire is. Fire is not seemingly there all the time, and yet its potential is always there. So awareness is behind consciousness. Conscious, I don't know how far to go with this because I don't want to get too 
into philosophy, but I'll go a little bit. Um, the word for consciousness is chitta. And chitta occurs in the confines of what's called nama rupa. Nama means name, and rupa means form. form. So your consciousness, which is personal and, and cultural, um, is always happening within name and form. You, you're always conscious of something. When you're conscious, it always has a form and a name. You know? And in a way, like, this is kind of the realm that Jacques Lacan was so obsessed about, that to be conscious of something is to always be in language. And it's very hard to be conscious of something because our perception is so structured by our language. How we, how we, bless you, how we talk to ourselves kind of determines how we're going to perceive things. I mean, this is why um, linguistics and feminism worked so well together the last 30 years, right? Because we see that built into our language is so much bias that affects our perception. And maybe more so in English than in French, for example. And maybe more so in French than in Hebrew. You know? um, so consciousness is always confined by name and form. Does this make sense? And yet, sometimes we have experiences, and for those of you who are meditators, you know how often this can happen and how it can happen in sustained ways, where there can be kind of like an all-encompassing stillness, where there is such a heightened sense of awareness, the feeling of which is connection. It's not dissociate, it's feeling so connected to everything, but not conscious of something. And we've all had moments of that in our lives. But here we're talking about it as a kind of meditative experience. But Patanjali is saying so important because when one sees that, we see that awareness is not conditioned. It's unconditioned. It's not coming or going. Yeah. And so, so again with language, if I talk about it as something that happens, then it seems like I can cultivate awareness. But you actually can't cultivate it. Right? It's, it's a negative. It's, it's a falling away. It's a negation. And so in a way, enlightenment is not something you ever get. Enlightenment is actually what's left when clinging is absent. Pure awareness is what's left when all that um, locomotion of the mind. And, you know, I think it's important to remember that when you stay with your breathing, all of those patterns of consciousness, they just settle on their own. And the famous analogy for this, the simile that's often used, Padmasambhava, many great meditation teachers, is that if you took a glass 
and you put it in a river and you pulled it up and you looked at the water, the water would be all muddy. And you put it on the table and you say, this is muddy water, right? But if you leave the water for two hours, if you left the water for two hours, all those particles of mud, all those gunas, right? They settle because of gravity. And then what's left is a glass with sediment on the bottom. And you look at the water and you say, the water is clear. It's transparent. So awareness, like water, is always clear. Awareness is always clear. The muddiness is consciousness. And consciousness settles. It just settles on its own. And that's why, you know, when I teach meditation retreat and I have interviews with people, the thing I'm listening for most in interviews is whether they're striving. Because striving for that kind of clarity, it just kills the relaxation factor. And then you just can't let consciousness settle. And um, this is the great paradox of meditation, is that all this is a natural process and it happens by itself. I think I just want to say one more thing about this, which is just my opinion, which is I want to stress, because it's sort of what I'm teasing a bit out of Patanjali, is I want to stress that awareness itself, I don't know another way of saying it, <laughs> is not dependent on anything. It's not dependent on meditation. It's not dependent on yoga practice. It's not dependent on the right room or the right Buddha or the right chant or the right language. It's not dependent on anything. And for us, we're using form to be able to see it or whatever, right? But awareness is not actually dependent on the form. That's hard to swallow sometimes. So if I could translate Patanjali's first line in that paragraph saying practice and non-reaction, I would also say not having an attachment to your practice. Like how to have the right kind of energy in our practice where we're also not clinging to the form of it. And um, this is tricky and controversial territory, but I just thought I'd throw it out <laughs> before the session ends. <laughs> Were there any hands up or questions? So awareness no. can only be felt when consciousness settles? Or is awareness a pervading and always present resource? can you still tap onto it, even if things are moving in front? Uh-huh. Good question. <laughs> so just sit with that and, and, you know, really feel out that question and see, is what Patanjali trying to point at your experience? Is that your experience? 
is that you're, first of all, the first question is, um, does consciousness settle on its own? Um, the second question is, is the experience of non-attachment a feeling of disconnection or a feeling of intimacy, of connection? To explore those. And then to see, is awareness, when there's moments of stillness, an awareness of something? Is our life really determined just by name and form? Like, can we perceive outside of language? And if so, who's doing the perceiving? So in a way, Patanjali is about to ask you a question that you need to struggle with, which is not what's the nature of awareness. He doesn't care about an epistemological question. He's saying, who is aware? Who is aware? Who are you? Who is aware? Who is breathing? As I'm speaking, who is listening? Who is listening? And the small mind can answer that only in terms of name and form. But Patanjali is pushing, going, no, there's something else. Who is listening to these words? Who is listening to rain? Who is aware? And that's where he breaks from philosophy. And he's looking you in the eye and he's asking a question that you can only answer with your kidneys and your gallbladder and your eyes and your whole body. You can't answer that question philosophically. Descartes tried it. I think, therefore I am. And Patanjali's response would be, yeah. And as long as you are, there is suffering. Because there's separation. But what happens when you're not thinking? What's left? Who is aware? And the reason why we have a form is to point that out. The reason why we have poets and filmmakers and musicians and meditators is to point out to the culture that there is something outside of your habits of name and form. And um, a path is designed to lead you into the wilderness. And so the path of meditation practice is to take you out into the wild. And the, these wild parts of consciousness where name and form start breaking down, where transitional objects can be renounced. To see what's there, what's left. What's left? Who is left? Good luck. <laughs> Let's finish by chanting.